Good afternoon, beautiful people. I'm keeping all my content free of charge so there's complete transparency so everyone can get the benefit of all the information. This is a completely independent podcast, but any monetary support is greatly appreciated. Click the support this podcast link at the end of the episode description for more details. Now back to the show. Good afternoon, beautiful people. Welcome to Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum. We are at episode 15. I can't believe that we made it to 15 episodes. I have a very special guest with me this afternoon. Her name is Sarah Omer, and she is, is an assistant professor of Latin American Studies, African American Studies, and Women's Studies at Lehman College in the Bronx, New York. She received her PhD in Hispanic Languages and Literatures at the University of Pittsburgh and focuses on gender, race, and trauma of Black women authors. And I love it that we have some shared interests. I work with primarily men, but I do work with the theme of trauma as well. So I'm sure that we will talk about that some today in our interview. She has several publications and outlets, such as the Journal of International Women's Studies and Pilora, the publication of the Afro-Latin American Literature Research Association. We will specifically discuss two articles I'm really intrigued by these articles. One is in the beginning was body language, clowning and crump as spiritual healing and resistance. I didn't even know what crump was. I had to look it up. And then the other article in particular that I wanted to pinpoint was the making and silencing of asheocracy. And you may have to explain what ashe is to the audience, um, asheocracy in Brazil. And we're gonna talk about the parallels of blackness in Brazil, the United States, um, some more trauma discussion, women authors, Black women authors in the region. Welcome to the show, and thanks for accepting that invitation. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. It's so nice I, to hear my bio played back at me, too. <laughs> no, it's an extensive one, let me tell you. it's. Um, I'm impressed I'm by your work. Now. I'm associate professor now. You're associate, see? Yes. I knew it was something I was going to ask you. Oh, my gosh, I should have verified that before, but it's okay. People I love official. it. She is an associate professor. My bad. Not an assistant, That's... but an associate professor. And it's... congratulations on that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And just to put in a plug for the pod, um, our audience is growing big time, especially on TikTok. Um, we're also available on YouTube and most podcasting platforms. It's an educational platform. If you follow the previous episodes, there can be... Um, episodes that make you question things a lot, but that's the point of the podcast. It's a podcast that goes against the grain. Um, it's a culture and a political podcast at the same time. And so I think different types of audiences can gain um, the benefit from it. And I think that's what it's about. I think more than ever now, we need to be more um, open-minded and exchange and dialogue with different types of people. And I think in our field, Sarah and our field in particular, it encourages that to, we understand that we have to confront different types of intersectionalities of people. And so we have less issues with that. I think it's a matter of bringing other people on board and maybe learning from us. And we may learn from them as well. But I wanted to um, actually start with you, Sarah. I always ask all my, my guest members, what's some of your background? Um, what got you into foreign languages in the, in the culture? Like, where are you from? Like, how did this journey start with Sarah Omer? Oh, I love this question. Um, it's a great question to explore, too, I think, for your audience, for people who don't necessarily think of 
studying a language as a gateway to a career. You know? mm -hmm. Languages is usually just that requirement that you just procrastinate to take to the very end. You know, if you if you get if you have the privilege of going through college um, or it's a class that maybe you took in middle school or high school or or, or part of a heritage month you know, <laughs> at a school. Um, I was always drawn to languages I didn't speak, um, probably because of how I was raised. My dad is French and my mom is from Madagascar. So I didn't get to learn um, her language, um, but I learned a few words. I was exposed to the music. And then I moved to the United States at um, 11. And at the time, what they offered, I was in Texas, what they offered was ESL classes. Um, so, you know, I got into second language acquisition very early. Uh, if we have any uh, linguistic listeners, they'll know that's the, the critical period age, right? So it's a, it's a good time to learn a new language. So that's why I sound like I'm native. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, then I remember actually it was in middle school in seventh grade. And then I'll flip over to, you know, how I got to this field. But in seventh grade, uh, I was past the, you know, the ESL. You, I mean, you had like a chunk of your day that was just learning English, isolated from everyone else at school. Um, and then, so the only classes you could take were math and maybe history, or I can't remember, or band, I can't remember. And then I, you know, then I graduated from that and I was able to take more classes um, with, you know, with all the, the regular classes and I got to take Spanish and it felt um, good because it was the one thing I was good at <laughs> with the French I just picked up the Spanish language so easily and I just was very curious at that age about you know the the culture the different countries that spoke that language um, and I ended up you know taking Spanish throughout um, and in college and I majored in it, I think, just because it was something that I already knew. Um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. But then I had a study abroad. Everybody has this, right? Like the study abroad experience. <laughs> so then I had a study abroad experience. I got to um, Mexico and I started to read magical realism. And it oh, just, okay. you know, it like it opened like um something in me you know that just made me really want to dig in and understand and that's when I started to be intrigued by collective trauma you know it was it's Pedro Paramo <laughs> and sí, sí, thinking claro. about the Mexican revolution and the way you know the whole country was in crisis but also the author and the way that was represented in the book and it just made me think about culture and literature and politics and healing from trauma. And then when I got into my master's, I kind of stuck with that 
curiosity and started to look at uh, women's narratives. I had one professor that just was a fierce feminist advocate and pushed me to focus on the perspective of women or what women are writing. Mm -hmm. So then the big influence in my master's was Gloria Saldua. I took a class on border thinking um, and got to read Gloria Saldua. And then that was the other big opening for me, realizing that you can write in more than one language mm -hmm. and theorize um, with poetry and with, you know, the way your story lives in your body um, and engage with, you know, your personal history and cultural history and still engage with um, bigger questions that, you know, the country was going through in the United States at the time, but also Chicano culture was going through um, at the time. And then Nansaldua um, with her gender, sexuality, her race, her social class, socioeconomic status, just everything just put together made it um, just like this beautiful tapestry. I couldn't stop staring at it. And I wanted to figure out how to weave my own, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so that got me to, I, every step of the way um, in my career, I've had mentors that have seen something in me. And I'm sure our listeners of African descent or people of color, women, girls, you know, can relate or anybody that's been oppressed in any way can relate where people saw something in me that I did not see in myself and we're trying to get that out of me and you know and motivate me to just go a little further go a little further go a little further and that's how I ended up in a doctoral program <laughs> you know I never thought you know I always wanted to teach but you know I never thought I would go into a PhD program I certainly didn't think I could write 200 plus pages on spirituality and trauma <laughs> in literature in Latin America, uh, I get a degree out of it. So that's kind of the journey that, you know, eventually got me here. Um, and I love it. I just, I love my job. I love what I get to do every day. Um, and kind of looking back at the journey, you know. Something that you said there, and we have a lot of commonality in our experiences, especially the career path, when you talk about just the point of where this was going to take you, because I've always been good at foreign languages. And at first, that's what I thought it was. It was just, okay, I'm good at it, so I'm going to stick with it. Because yeah. I used to I used to always study dictionaries, read books. Like when I was a kid, I was a kid. I didn't want toys. I wanted books. I wanted I was the only child for a few years. And then my sister came along about three and a half years later. But I was still pretty much, I was characterized as a bookworm, I guess, in the family. Like I've always yeah, been too. that. Me that too. Always had my nose in the book. <laughs> and so it just kind of kept going from there. And it um it hit me just one day that this could be a career. But I think a lot of people don't see it that way. They do as you mentioned, they don't think that you can speak a different language and actually analyze text. And right. Because no, no one even knows what we does have to have the time. Like the questions I get, so you teach <laughs> basic level Spanish classes, right, Sarah? You teach basic level Spanish. I did, right? yeah. 
they don't see it beyond that though. That's all they see it is. Um, you can't do anything with Spanish language, right? And it's like once they realize, no, we're speaking a language and we're within that world, like you would be reading Harry Potter or anything else. And it mm -hmm. just blows people's minds that no, it's more than just a language, you know, it's yeah. every cultures, sociology, everything that you can do with the language, you know, with an mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. And like you said, with the, the gender influence, your own personal backgrounds, um, our socioeconomic backgrounds, our racial backgrounds, all that stuff goes into it. It's not just simply in a Spanish class teaching a basic level, it's, it's the human experience as a whole. And I don't think people quite grasp that outside of our field. Exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. and there, you know, there's so much you can do with with the degree. I mean, I ended up doing, you know, what one would call a more traditional route where I just went from the undergraduate to the master's to the PhD and then, you know, straight into um, teaching college level. I taught Spanish, coordinated a Spanish program and then moved into, uh, you know, I got a, a Fulbright award. So I went to Brazil for a year and then secured a second, you know, my second job, which is the one that I'm at now, which is teaching Black Studies and Latin American Studies, um, mostly teaching in English, teaching electives um, to students in the Bronx. And, you know, they don't have very many faculty who are trained in both Latin American Studies and Africana Studies um, mm -hmm. in the U.S. at all. <laughs> and, uh it's becoming, you know, a, a large demographic group that needs to be uh, recognized and um, taught about and taught with, you know, and I love getting into the literature with my students because everything that I put in front of them, they've already witnessed, they've already lived it. So um I'm learning from them a, a lot you know a lot more than you know what exactly what, what do you mean by that for the audience you say you're learning from the students through the literature itself like what do you mean by that exactly so for example when we read a uh, testimonio from Cuba you know life of Reita um I don't have to explain to them what internal colonization is. Um, they get it, they've lived it, they have, you know, a long list of examples. Um, so what we get to do is talk about how it affects us, how do we enact, you know, um, act out in our internal colonization with family members or in our communities. Um, and how can we, you know, break that down and, and heal from it and transform it. So that's because they're all Black Latinx students, you know, we just, they're from the Dominican Republic or, uh, you know, their parents are from the Dominican Republic or, or you know, Puerto Rican, diaspora or from the island, um, and Jamaican, you know, so, and then we also have like um, African immigrants. So there's just so many different groups. And there's another class that I taught that was Afro-Latinx, who are Afro-Latinx. And we 
um, looked at the history of people of African descent in Latin America. So they start, and then we talked about, you know, what is this category Afro-Latinx? Because, you know, there there is a lot of people who are Afro-Latinx, but the category itself for Afro-Hispanic doesn't really make sense because they could be coming from a part of the Caribbean that's not Spanish speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe that's just part of their heritage. Um, you know, and the, some students will bring up, you know, just like the Latin part just doesn't make sense. Like, where is Latin even coming from? <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, so, um, you know, and then there's Brazil. So we just, we have these conversations at a very deep level um, through what we're reading in terms of literature. So it's like the the text is a platform um, and it allows us to engage in topics. Um, and also it allows us to think about, I, I always encourage my students to think about, let's look at the way it's written. Like, what are some choices that the writer made or for the in a testimonial what are some choices that the the teller the storyteller made and the person who's transcribing made um to create a narrative you know and what is what is what impact does that narrative have you know the way michelle obama wrote becoming there's a very clear structure there you know i mean the first thing that comes to mind for me when i look at it is there's a large percentage of that text that is not about her. It's about her husband and it's about, mm-hmm. you know, that administration. And, you know, what were the choices behind that? And for me, it's never about putting down a specific text or, you know, critiquing it in a negative way. I like to get inspired from Patricia Hill Collins and Toni Morrison, you know, the bluest eye and Patricia Hill Collins and black feminist thought that mm-hmm. us to let's think about the overarching system, you know, the, the greater logic that we're functioning in and how a particular person or a particular text is reflective of that logic. Right. So one way to approach literature in general but you know I'll just keep going with this example of uh becoming is well what does that say about the overall system you know the market that this book is trying to cater to mm-hmm. the uh, you know the particular society you know the the time that you know the book was published and let's think about you know what would be the strategy be- behind making those choices right so, so those are some things that I try to engage my students in when we when we talk about literature. Okay. I was I was thinking about something that you mentioned earlier. You talked about the moment that you discovered magic realism, realism <laughs> magical. Uh, when did it first come to you with the whole Aphrodisporic um with our spiritualities and our histories? At that point, when you discovered magic realism, was that already in your forefront or did that come down the road? Oh, that's a great question. No, way later down the road. Um, Not until I took uh, classes with Jerome Branch at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and And that's 
you know, I think that was like the first African-American studies class I took was at the University of Pittsburgh too, an Afro-Caribbean dance class. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it was never really on my radar to think about race in that in that way. It was a little bit in, you know, when I was reading on Sardua and thinking about border thinking, but not from a Black studies perspective. Mm-hmm. So later on, as I developed like the final, you know, in the final phase of my dissertation, I think is when I started to see that I could speak to the trauma of people of African descent in general, um, instead of, you know, and racialize it instead of just talking about trauma. Mm-hmm. And um and really anchor the approach to analyzing text to reflect spiritual practices of African diasporic religions. And then that also came through as I revised the dissertation into a book. And I got feedback from peer reviewers on the manuscript and they they helped me really anchor my approach to black studies right to african diasporic religion studies to um concepts from you know yoruba practices which is a Uh, part of the culture that's of the African diaspora in Latin America that you'll see mostly in um, Brazil, I want to say. Um, it's also, you, people might have heard Yoruba as a language. Mm-hmm. And candomblé would be the religious practice that's associated with that culture. Um, and then there's Santeria that's mostly practiced, a religious practice that's mostly practiced in Cuba. And then Vodun, which would be the equivalent that's mostly practiced in Haiti. I'm just putting in very basic terms here. And so that's when I started to look more specifically at different deities from those religious systems and how they were showing up in the literature and starting started to look more at, and I think these were things that I, knew of intuitively you know we if if we connect truly um with ourselves with our spirit um as people of color there's information that starts to come up um that can't be denied that it's there you know uh you can learn it intellectually you can learn it intuitively um, but I believe it's, you know, it's in your heart, it's in your soul, uh, it's undeniably a part of who you are and, you know, you have access to it. So I was starting to make those connections like, oh, this is a way that I've already seen and experienced the world, but I didn't know that it came from a whole African diaspora culture, right? Mm-hmm. So, um. Yeah, it's it's 
it's a journey, right? It's a process of getting a better understanding of, you know, this centuries long history and, and culture that I was never taught about up until, you know, I was in the PhD program. So. But, but I mean, just, there's so many levels to this because we're talking about just strictly um, within academia. And I think it's, in, it's, it's interesting, like our, you have Afro-American culture, which is a part of the broader diaspora, but Afro-American culture is very different from Afro-Latin American culture or cultures. Mm. Yeah. And then you have um, the African subcontinent culture, which is, you know, you yes. can't even, you can't put it in any sort of a box. You can't put any of this stuff really in a box. But no. I guess the most perplexing thing for me, um, navigating this experience and, and continuing to do so, is um, I sense this disconnect between, especially U.S. Blacks with the larger diaspora, especially when it comes to some of the culture issues we're talking about now, language, religion, spirituality, and mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's because um, we're so influenced here. We're in such an insular box when it comes to Hollywood and the way Afro culture is portrayed through the lens of white people, especially. I mean, if you look at voodoo, the way voodoo is is portrayed in Hollywood, it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the way they just pinpoint and stereotype um, and just and mock, basically, they're mocking um our origins really, I mean, you know, pre during the Middle Passage and, you know, that's what people had before they came over, before they were forced over, that's what they had was their spirituality. And, and for them to just sort of mock it now and people not have any idea at all what their culture is. Like I, I see black people constantly um, shying away from those images, you know, because they're told that that is a negative association even though that's from the larger culture. And this is crazy. I'm I, I'm an atheist teaching my students this stuff. And they're like, Kiko, like, are you serious about this? I'm like, yeah, it's like, it's, it's an absolute brainwashing. Like, th this is part of our culture, you know, and people, the young generations, everyone is still just kind of going along with the, um, but that's not cool to be associated with. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying myself, so, okay, I'm telling you that that's more real than the stuff that you're practicing. Only, and I'm not trying to make judgment. I'm just saying you're basically you're following a Protestant white religion as opposed to the religion that was part of your experiences before we came over. Like, does that make any sense to you at all? And people are just they don't know how to comment. They they can't counter you because they're confused when you say stuff like that because no one has ever confronted them and told them. Do you realize that that's part of the larger culture itself? Do you get these kind of um, interactions with people who maybe not be in academia or maybe people within academia think like this? I don't know. But that's kind of been my experience with people who aren't studying these types of things. They just have this attitude that's very degrading towards Afro-religion and spirituality. I mean, I think, um, yes, whether I have those interactions or not, it, it is there. You know, and it's important to talk about it and and to name it. 
um, and come back to, you know, why is it that, um, that this behavior is okay, right? The, the degrading of a certain culture at the benefit of another, you know, and that's a colonial practice. So that's what was put in place as the continent that we're living on um, started to get into the phase of, you know, the brutal violence and objectification of people in order to have a specific population um, thrive, right? So originally it was the indigenous people and they were depicted as uh, barbaric um, or uh, noble, which you can see in you know the letters of Christopher Columbus, which oh, is something yeah. you know <laughs> I love to look at with students so that they see, um, you know where where that narrative comes from, um, and you know it's five hundred years, um, you know, and even before that there was uh, the Moors against you know so there's. There's always been uh, this this need to you know be better than and and vilify the other, and I think for me it's important to just understand um, where the, the person is coming from and um, allow them to have whatever understanding and belief that, you know, they choose to have. Um, and in, in my classes to just invite students, if they're not comfortable with talking about uh, practices of Santeria in Cuba, because they firmly, they firmly believe that um, it will get in the way of, excuse me, of their relationship with God you know, that it will put them in danger. Um, you know, I can only invite them. It's kind of like a, you know, when mm -hmm. you do a mindfulness, when you do a mindfulness practice, you can't force anyone to develop a life of, a lifestyle of mindfulness. You can't even force someone to meditate. All you can do is in, mm -hmm. invite them. And if they so choose, you know, they get, they get to participate. Um, and, you know, and like you're saying, I think we do have this duty of educating people about the culture um, that this is. It's as much a culture as Judeo-Christian practices are. Um, and it's part of our, you know, human history. You know, mm -hmm. it's part of Black history, definitely. Um, but it's just, it's just part of our world and, and why not, why not get to know all of the different cultures that make up the Americas? Um, and just to go back on like the other, it's not an antithesis that you brought up, but like the, the, the different ramifications, you know, that make up the diaspora today I really like how you broke that down um I think it's the same colonial history that's prevented 
us from getting to know each other hemispherically mm-hmm. and transatlantically. Um, so, and, and imperialism and capitalism has played a role in this too. So everyone gets to read Michelle Obama's book, you know, but who's going to read Francia Marquez's book, you know, and those of you who don't know who Francia exactly. Marquez is, is she's, you know, the new, the first um, Black woman vice president. Um, she's written a letter to Kamala Harris. Maybe, maybe um, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris has responded now. This was years ago um, and she didn't hear back. Um, you know, and so like, are we all going to read Francia Marquez's book? No, because because it's just the way our world works. You know, there's an empire mm-hmm. and then there's satellites around the center, you know, and, um, you know, we can call it out all day. We can recognize that it's there um, and then figure out, you know, what's our, what's our role going to be in that. So my role in that is to try to connect as much as I can with contacts that I have in Latin America. And then just let people know, you know, when I'm, I'm in a faculty meeting, I let them know, you know, Dante Marquez is campaigning. And I, you know, when I'm in a, a room with, uh, you know, different, you know, scholars and they haven't heard of her you know I share you know I share her hashtag so they can start looking into it and uh, I rejoice when I see Snoop Dogg sharing you know (laughs) social media about her campaign I mean that was such a big deal um what what is the book that she wrote so I I, she hasn't no she hasn't written a book yet but okay I got you thinking hypothetically yeah no oh okay yeah. Gosh, you had me hype. I was like, is this a real thing? Like <laughs> I mean, now I'm gonna look into it. I don't think it's time to write a book right now, but probably will. Um yeah. It's, yeah, it's... so yeah, those forces are, you know, at work and um they affect our relationships. They affect our way of um the way we see people and, you know, and they get in the way and that, you know, hearing that someone can call another culture, um, you know, vile or uh, satanic, um, it hurts, you know, because Ideally, I would like to see the possibility of um, people coming together to to discuss and see the value in our differences rather than just isolating ourselves, you know, and that holds me accountable. Like, who am I isolating myself from in terms of, you know, within the Black community? Mm-hmm. It's not easy. It's it's an uncomfortable place to be in to try to understand and be compassionate and open. I think it, it's crazy. This reminds me of 2016 when I was um I was at Pellissippi Community College while I was still at UT Knoxville, and I taught at Pellissippi Community College in Knoxville in the summers, mm-hmm. and it was the first time I taught um, about Santeria to my students at a community college. And I've noticed that at community colleges, you have more autonomy as far as what you can teach. Mm -hmm. And when you go to UT, they basically, 
they have the syllabi already planned for you. You teach the shit that they have on yeah. there for you. And I'm just saying to myself, I'm shit, I'm such a rebel as it is. I mean, I'm just looking at that. I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like I got 10 <laughs> years of teaching experience at the time going in and you want me to teach some free plan, you know, stuff that you already have there. I, I just can't do it in my heart because they say, let's meet the culture standards, communication culture standards. Okay. I'm speaking Spanish to them. Okay. So let me teach the culture. I want to teach them and not the stuff that you have picked already for me to teach and let me use my experience and maybe enrich it a little bit more and maybe the students can have better reception and that's exactly what happened i taught yeah. santeria i wasn't going to do it at first because why i felt the colonial the internal colonial pressure that you talked about before because i've been told don't do it kiko i got one side of my brain saying kiko don't teach them right. santeria but i was like you know what screw it i'm going to do it anyway because this is my classroom and it had an amazing reception. I had yeah. black students in there, white students in there, East Tennessee. A lot of these people didn't have any exposure to this type of information. And I was like, you know what? Well, that worked out well. Guess what I'm going to do next? I'm going to maybe slip in some indigenous culture that I want to talk about. And then I did this and that. I was like, okay, well, let me talk about some LGBTQ Puerto Rican stuff that I have, you know, that I wanted, you know, to incorporate into it. And everything, one thing led to another. And it was amazing, but it's like, we're not necessarily encouraged to do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, even though we're in this field of open-mindedness, apparently. But mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, it's one of those things that I, I push all the professors who are listening to this or who will listen to um, go against the grain. I mean, you know, it's not always about sticking to conformity. Like the whole point of this podcast is to sort of tell people you can be outside of the box without messing up everything, but you can be, you can disrupt the system within your own um, interpretation. And I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, I'm not worried about losing a job over it. If, if I'm going to lose a job over that, then at least I was uh, authentic with myself, you know, cause I talk culture within the, the confines of Latin America. I don't understand that stuff, but you get that mixed messaging. Um, and you may have had those experiences yourself, um, before you became associate professor, um, where you were conflicted about teaching certain information. Have you ever had that happen to you? Early on in my, earlier on in my teaching career, um, not so related to Black studies or Afro-Latin American studies, but I would teach 9-11 um, in Chile. Mm. And... Um, <laughs> There's a YouTube video that's no longer available on YouTube. Oh, I bet. <laughs> um, and, it, you know, it was just a very shocking way of presenting uh, a historical event that had happened decades before 9-11 uh, um, was part of, you know, the history in the United States. It had already been a part of American history, but in Chile. Um, and some students would embrace it and other students would just, they were confused or um, offended that uh, we would look at the history of, you know, another country. It also gave, you know, the, the perspective that I, 
invited my students to explore was the role that the United States and France and uh, England, you know, in different countries played in uh, the coup in 9-11 in 1973 in Chile. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we wouldn't go in depth in it because it, it was like for my elementary Spanish classes. Um, you know, so going into that type of exploration on a day like 9-11, you know, of course that was hard for some students. <laughs> it's It's so drastically different from uh you know patriotic approach to 9-11 so yeah another time when I taught um at Lehman was we watched a film I can't remember which one I think it might have been maybe City of God okay um or maybe something else and I you know students just couldn't I can't remember what it was exactly but I had students who were became very concerned about their well-being because of what culture they were being exposed to you know like like that what I was referencing earlier that it was getting in the way of you know their sanctity wow like the um what the, the life of the favelas or something um no it was a it was there was like a, a ritual that was presented in the film and they just they didn't want to be exposed to it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, to me, it's now looking back, I just have a lot more understanding around that than I might have at the time. Um, and... It just reminds me of another instance when I was in Brazil on the Fulbright. Um, I was with uh, Miriam Alves, who's a poet from Brazil that you know, um, who's published tons of books. If you want to look her up, her last name is A-L-V-E-S. Um, and she's really getting off the ground. I mean, I, I like to call her the Audre Lorde of Brazil. Oh, wow. That's, you know? that's high praise. You know, but we know like how Audre Lorde is more known now than when she was alive, you know, which happens a lot. Zora Neale Hurston happened to her too. Mm -hmm. You know, so she's somewhat well known, um, but deserves a lot more uh, um, exposure. So Miriam Alves, I was with her um, in somewhere in the north of Sao Paulo in, uh, you know, one of the hoods up there. And we went to meet up another poet, Raquel Almeida, who's also phenomenal, A-L-M-E-I-D-A, -E Almeida, Raquel. Um, and Raquel was doing a spoken word event with her collective that's called Elo da, oh my gosh, Elo da Corrente, yeah. And um, they were doing a spoken word event in a public library. And the way they start their spoken word events is always with a drum, um, you know, calling in uh, spirits and, you know, bringing the ashe into the room, which is mm -hmm. just for spirit. Um, 
and and connecting with ancestors. And they explain, you know, why they're using the drum because there's children in the audience and adults in the audience that don't know the meaning of having a hand drum, um, you know, which a lot of people don't know. You know, it just it 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 brings in an energy to the space and allows a community to connect with um ancestors and ancestral memory um in a way that you cannot without the drum um so they would start playing the drum they would start chanting a few uh simple songs um and a couple of people just walked out mm. and when they were doing the sign of the cross and they just mm. they they couldn't, they couldn't be in that space. Wow. You know, and that's the power of the legacy of colonialism mm -hmm. that, you know, um, you know, that there's a large chunk of the black population that isn't getting access to this part of ancestral culture um, because there's another uh, culture that's, taught them that they can't you know that if they do uh, you know they're gonna get lost um when from what i have lived you know and i can only speak from my experience i can't like preach this to anyone else it's it's quite the opposite it's like <laughs> i get connected with myself and i am found and i you know i get to uh you know drink water and like plant roots and um that I you know I just wouldn't be able to uh without that access to ancestral memory and it's interesting for me because it's you know I could say like it's not even my culture like my mom is from Madagascar but it's it is you know mm -hmm. um so yeah, that was that was the memory that I recalled about the library and yeah, they left, they left and they like, I think one of them had a child who's like, you know, held their child by the hand and did the sign of the cross and I was like, oh, you know, and I was thinking, oh, in Brazil, everyone's going to be playing drums and doing the chants and this, you know, I just had this exotic image but uh, no, there's, there's division and there's um, tension and there's heterogeneity there too and you know it can be heartbreaking but I think it's also it's just real and um I don't want to say beautiful but it's just it's part of our reality you know mm -hmm. we are um as the African diaspora we always have been a heterogeneous you know beautiful community and yeah, I'm so excited. I love this project for you. I wanted to uh, make sure this is included in the episode. I just, I really want to congratulate you on the 15 episodes. Yes, um, thank you. Excited to see what you're doing with everything that you've learned um, and the way that you're, you know, contributing to the community. I think this is just a great resource for so many different people to have access to. Um, and I'm just, I'm really excited for you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that so much. But yeah. well, audience, we will continue this um, second part at a later time. And good evening, beautiful people, and goodbye, beautiful people. Talk to you soon. Yes.